Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Good morning, White Sulphur. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, just like we sang this morning, we want to come to you this morning in humility. We want to come recognizing that uh, we, are, we, are, we are the beggars in the situation. You are the king uh, that has come to offer us salvation. That all we can do is bring our faith to you, Lord. Thank you for your son that, that died in our place that died the criminal's death that we deserved and then by eternal life and joy for us. I pray that we as a people, White Sulphur Baptist here, would be a church that doesn't just do the right things but does the right things for the right reasons. That we would seek in all of our actions and all of our ministries to glorify you and that we would do these things from a place, a root of joy and admiration for the Savior and the King that we serve. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2. If you are new, we are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. We've entitled this uh, series, Good News for Hard Times, because that's what we believe that the Gospel is. It's Good news. Um, This gospel was originally given to early Christians that were facing intense persecution. So this would have been their uh, their ink and paper that they could turn to to read over and over to remind themselves of the gospel's good news. That there is salvation to be had in Jesus Christ. And that this world is not all that there is. That there is an eternity that comes after this, that there is so much more to be looking forward to than just the circumstances that we might be facing. Have you ever known someone or seen someone or been someone who has done the right thing for the wrong reasons? I'm sure all of us have been there at some point. You're doing the right thing, but the motives behind it might be a little crooked. So you find a wallet On the side of the road, you open it up and there's some money in it and you decide you're just going to keep that wallet. You're going to hang on to that cash that you found. But later, maybe you see in a community Facebook group or something that someone has lost their wallet and they're looking for that. And they've offered a reward that's valued at more than the money in the wallet. So you decide to return the wallet and get the reward. I don't think that's the right reason to take the wallet back to the person that has lost it, although you are doing the right thing by taking it back to them. Maybe your uh, best friend has just gone through a rough breakup, their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and they are, they're torn up, they're sad, they're emotional, and you really want to help them through it, but not because so much you care that they're going through a hard time, but their um, distress is kind of complicating some of the plans that you had for the weekend. You wanted to go out fishing with them. You wanted to go out and do something fun, and and they're not feeling up to it. So you've got to cheer them up in order to get to do the things that you want to do this weekend so that those plans don't get canceled. So instead of caring about the person and cheering them up for that reason, just out of love, you're doing it from a self-motivated 
perspective. That's maybe the right thing for the wrong reason. Maybe uh, you give generously at church. You tithe heavily, but that has, been, that has become kind of a way of excusing yourself from, from volunteering, from putting boots on the ground in service. It's good to give generously and sacrificially, but not at the expense of being involved in other ways. Or this one. Uh, this one is fairly popular. Maybe you see a homeless person. Maybe you see someone in need. Maybe you're on a mission trip. Uh, there's someone who's looking for food or for some money, and you decide, hey, I'm going to help this person out. I'm going to actually meet the need that they have. And so you go and buy them lunch, or you pull out some cash from your wallet. You go over to the person, you start to give it to them, but you take the time to take a couple selfies to throw up on Instagram to make sure that other people see you doing the good thing. Maybe you're on a mission trip, and you take some pictures in a similar scenario with some hashtags about the least of these and making sure that uh, some likes and some comments start rolling in your way about what a good Christian you are. These are the right things for the wrong reason. We should be doing all of those things, but the motive behind why we do things is absolutely essential. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they misunderstood and they misused Scripture. And saddest of all is that they they misused the law of God, believing that they could earn their own salvation apart from the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And in so doing, they actually lost their souls in spiritual darkness and sin. Go ahead and turn to Mark 2, starting in verse 18. We're going to go all the way through 312 this morning. So it's going to be Mark 2, 18 through 312. These religious leaders, they worked really hard at the right things. They were doing a lot of religious things. They were on the outside very righteous. They kept the law very well. They even created new laws to make sure that they didn't get close to breaking the laws in Scripture. So they were putting up boundaries to protect the boundaries. The bad news is that all of us have the potential to be Pharisees. That all of us have the potential to face this temptation to find our justification before God in something other than Jesus Christ on the cross. We all have the temptation to look for other ways to justify ourselves. And we'll all misuse and and misunderstand Scripture at some point. We'll all be tempted towards pride in our good works. Look what I've done. Look what, uh, look what I've done for the church. Look what I've done for the community. Look what I've done for Christ. Let me put that on Facebook or Instagram and let me uh, be uh, adorned for those things. We all have that temptation to have our motives skewed for doing the right things. But the good news, the good news is that Jesus came to save people just like that. People came to save people like the Pharisees. People came to save those who are proud and self-righteous and who look to be praised for the good things that they've done. He came to save people like me and like you. When we see this happening, when we see misuses of actions or traditions or, or even scripture, it's easy to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That thing has been misused, so I'll no longer use it in any way at all. And that's a dangerous place to be. Jesus did not come to abolish the scriptures that the Pharisees and scribes were misusing. 
and misinterpreting. He didn't come to abolish them. He came to bring a restoration of their true meaning. In no way did Jesus teach us to unhitch from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the bedrock for the New Testament. We need that to understand why Jesus even came in the first place. So the problem is not with God's word. The problem is with how it was communicated. So we need to make sure that that's clear also. It's not the problem with God's word. Uh, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, I was uh, dropping something off to someone. And I, uh, I had a text message with the address to the house that I was supposed to go to. And so I follow, I, I put that address into my phone and my Apple Maps takes me to that address, to that house. And I get there and I knock on the door and I hear someone yelling, come in. And so I thought that was a little odd, but it sounded like it could be the person I was looking for. So I open the door and I walk inside and I walk around the corner and I walk into a living room and there's a very nice elderly gentleman sitting there and uh, he screams, who are you at me? <laughs> And that's not who I was looking for, the man that was sitting in that chair. And and I said, I'm I'm CJ, I'm I'm looking for so-and-so, and and he could not hear me no matter how loud I yelled. And so he he said, who are you? Over and over and over. I'm not going to scream into the microphone, but imagine me screaming, okay? And then then he he says, I don't know you. And I said, well, I don't know you either. You're the one that told me to come into the house. I'm looking for so-and-so. And And then this very sweet lady came down the hallway um, and understood that there was a very confused situation that had happened and redirected me to where I needed to be. Now, that was... Horrible, because as I'm standing there in a stranger's living room, I'm realizing that I'm standing in a stranger's living room who invited me into their home. And all of that came about because the text message that I received actually had the wrong address on it. Okay? It had the wrong address. So I went to the address that I was given, and I did what I thought I should do at that place, but my source information was bad. And I ended up in a stranger's home. The scriptures are not bad source information. When correctly understood, uh, when correctly applied, they get you to your destination, to the right destination. So first and foremost, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they had faulty scriptures. They had God's word, but their hearts were hardened, their motives were bad, and so they misused it and they twisted it uh, for their own purposes. And so just to drive this point home, I want to read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. When he says law and prophets, you can kind of think of this as like a summary statement of the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm not throwing all of that away right now. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a bold statement. Because from the average person's perspective at the time, the the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was unmatched. These were people with perfect church attendance, with perfect tithing records. They were the ones praying on the street corners. They were the ones that were the most religious in the whole area. No one could compare to them. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to be more righteous than those people. And what we're going to get down to is that Jesus is saying they're doing the right things, but it's not from a source of righteousness in their hearts. 
And so, now that we have Jesus' intention clear this morning, I want to turn to our main passage, which picks up in Mark 2, 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees, I'm sorry, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest, while the, wedding, while the bridegroom is with them, As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh Wine skins. Now, that's, uh, that's going to be really clear to someone who's living in the culture and dealing with things called wineskins, but we have to do a little bit of work to understand what's being said here. The main point is that the new and the old are not going to mix. That's what we need to take away from that. The new and the old are not going to mix. So Jesus decides to answer the question in two parts. When they say, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's a reasonable question at the time. There's nothing too crazy about that. Jesus answers in two ways. And first he uses this wedding illustration. So at the beginning of Mark, we talked about John the Baptist and how he's kind of this figure that is representing kind of a best man at a wedding. And this is because the incarnation of Jesus does mirror a wedding in some ways. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride, and the two are meeting each other during Jesus' ministry on earth. And really, his answer, Jesus, to the Pharisees at this time, it goes kind of something like this. It would be weird for the wedding guests to start fasting during the wedding. Now is the time to eat. Now is the time to celebrate. Now is the time to feast because I'm here with them. This is still the celebration period. But then we get this hint in verse 20. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And in the Gospel of Mark, that's the first time we get this hint from Jesus that something bad is going to happen. This is the first time that he's foreshadowing for us uh, his death on the cross. He's saying that there will be a time when he's taken that will be appropriate for fasting, for seeking him eagerly. But now is not that time. And then he uses this wineskin illustration to also answer their question. So, when an old piece of clothing at the time got a hole in it, they would take a patch and they would patch it. But the old piece of clothing had already been washed, had already been dried several times. It had gone through its natural shrinking process. So if they took a new cloth to patch the old cloth and they sewed it on there, the old one would shrink and tear away and actually cause more damage to the original cloth. So what is the new cloth and what is the old clothing? I'm pretty sure, I'm convinced that in this, in this illustration that Jesus is giving us, the old cloth is, is not fasting, but the self-righteous reasons that the Pharisees fasted. Jesus doesn't do away with fasting. That's still a practice that we see taught in the New Testament that is affirmed in the New Testament. So the motives that the Pharisees had, why they're fasting, is not going to jive, is not going to work well with the teachings of Jesus because Jesus cares very much about the motives of the heart. Why are you fasting? Jesus is restoring back to what was originally intended 
by fasting, which is earnestly seeking God, a commitment to repentance, focused prayer. The Pharisees weren't using it that way. They were using it for attention. They were using it for pride. They were using it for social gain. It begs the question, have you ever tried to marry sins from your old life to your new life in Christ? Have you ever tried to sew on to the the new man or woman in Christ something that you had left behind? That I've been saved, I've been baptized, I've given my life to Christ. I, I died with him, I was raised to new life, and yet I try to sew this thing back on to myself. Have you tried to just use Jesus as a patch? Something that you make in addition to your life? Or have you completely clothed yourself in his righteousness? Jesus is saying it has to all be new. There's no room for mixing the old with the new. If Jesus is just a little patch attached to your old life, eventually that patch is going to tear And it's going to leave worse damage that was even there to begin with. Jesus doesn't want to just be another thing that the Pharisees use to appear righteous. He wants to make them righteous. He wants to clothe them in true, genuine righteousness like only he can. And he wants the same thing for you. Remember we said at the beginning, Jesus came to save people like Pharisees and people like us. And then the Pharisees and the the religious leaders, they kind of escalate the situation. So they go from just asking a question, hey, how come you don't fast? Or how come your disciples don't fast like these other disciples are doing? That seems reasonable. That's not very aggressive. But then it it escalates starting in verse 23 of chapter 2. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So right there, verse 24, it goes from what seems like an innocent question to much more of an accusation. They are doing something that's not lawful. Why are they doing it? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And just like last week, we explained what the Son of Man, that term means. It's a throwback to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is claiming to be that for um, that uh, prophesied Messiah. He's saying, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am God. I am Lord over these things. This is a very bold statement again. So in the same way that the Pharisees, they had twisted the intended meaning of fasting for their personal advantage, they had also done so with the Sabbath. Really, we're getting the same lesson from both of these confrontations that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. They claim it's not lawful on the Sabbath to pluck grain and eat as you walk along the field. But their mistake, and this is the mistake that we make also, is that they have confused their additional preferences and their additional rules to Scripture with Scripture. Remember we said that they have set up boundaries to try and protect their boundaries. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I said in the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy 23 says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, 
You may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So Jesus takes them back to the scriptures and says, no, 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 this is what I said. This is what the Holy Spirit said through the prophets and the law. And you're trying to add to that. There is provision for feeding yourself that doesn't count as labor. And that made them uncomfortable. So in their desire for holiness, they've gone beyond what the scripture says. And in, and in doing so, in doing that, they have actually bound the consciences of people to something other than the word of God. And that's a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous thing to do. We want to take people constantly back to the word Back to the word. What does the Bible say? Binding someone's conscience to something that isn't biblical, that's not extra holiness, that's sinful. So Jesus is challenging the person whose heart leans toward a struggle with legalism. He's challenging the ones who, even with good intentions, Right? Being as charitable as possible. Oftentimes this happens from a place of good intentions. He's, he's challenging the ones that would add to scripture. That go beyond what God has commanded. And then impose those extra rules on others as if they are scripture. And then there's this third escalation. So it goes from asking this fairly innocent question. To saying, I believe that they're breaking the law. Why are they doing that? And then to this. So Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. So verse 2 really says it all. They watched Jesus so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So you see that very quick escalation from him showing up on the radar, asking questions to, we have to destroy him. That's crazy, but that's what sin does to us when it's threatened, when it's unrivaled by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It goes from asking questions very quickly to, I must destroy what is threatening the thing that I'm in love with. And they were in love with their pride and their self-righteousness, and so they had to defend it severely. In verse 2, they use the word accuse. In this Greek word, it really has a legal ring to it. So think like we're preparing our legal case against him. We're going to start gathering evidence to bring this guy down because we can't have this. We can't have what he's teaching. So can you imagine trying to bring a legal case, right? A a case of sin, a case of law breaking against the one who gave you the law. They're trying to accuse the very God Whose, whose moral standards are the root and basis for the moral law of being immoral. That's the case that they're trying to make. That's how blinded they are by their sin. That's how irrational they have become. These men, they know the scriptures. They know the truth and they're suppressing it. The Pharisees so fiercely defended their traditions, their additional rules, that they forgot the heart 
of God's law. They were so self-righteous because of their outward appearance that they had no real love for God or for neighbor. They've worked so hard trying to keep all of the, of the little mice out of the barn that they don't realize the barn's on fire. I'm going to set up this to keep that little mouse out. I'm going to set up this to keep that little mouse out. But they turn around and the whole thing's burning down around them. They've missed the big picture. They've missed the point of the law. They've missed the God that the law represents. So what is that big picture? I think the big picture is that while God cares about our outward actions, he equally cares about our motives behind those actions. So just just listen to these words as we move through Scripture and, and see if you see the same theme that I saw. Amos 5 says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He's saying, you do all the religious stuff. You sing all the church songs, but your hearts aren't with me. I need your heart. Matthew 7, maybe the most terrifying passage in Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the fatal mistake that they made is they they get there on the day of judgment. They're standing before Christ. and, And imagine with me, he says, why should I let you in? And they say, well, look at all the good stuff I've done. That's not what gets you in. Christ is what gets you in. Faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins is what gets you in. They pointed to their works instead of pointing to Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Why are you doing the things that you do? Is it out of love for neighbor? Is it out of love for God? Micah 6, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And one more, Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, they pushed the lawyer out front, they're like, he'll get him. This guy's trained to argue, this guy's trained to debate. He'll build a case against him, he'll tie him up in an intellectual knot that he cannot get out of. So they pushed the lawyer out front. And he goes to question him, to test him. And he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 40 of Matthew 22 is key. On those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On those two. If you fail at those two, you failed at all. If you do not love God, if you do not love your neighbor, it doesn't matter how often you fast. It doesn't matter how much you give if you failed at those two. So, yes, keeping God's commandments is exceedingly important, but why you keep them is equally important. Are you trying to earn your salvation through church attendance or good works? If that's you, you've got to be exhausted. Because that's a burden that you can't carry, that you're not meant to carry. That's a burden that was, that was nailed to the cross with Jesus. That he has purchased for you what you could not on your own. So the works that we do, the good things, that really are good things to do, those are, those are evidences of our salvation. Those are fruits of our salvation. They're not the means by which we're saved. And the Pharisees had that backwards. They thought that they could climb that righteousness ladder all the way up to heaven. So then verse 7 of chapter 3, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. That's something that we see uh, Jesus do several times throughout the Gospels, that he withdraws with just a few of them. It says, And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the crowds are gathering. The authorities are plotting. The spirits are declaring. The popularity of Jesus is peaking in these moments. There are so many people coming to see him that he had to stand on a boat and be pushed out into the water so that he's not crushed. There's people coming from all over the region to see Jesus. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus because everyone wants to see what they can get from him. But by the 14th chapter of Mark, there will not be a single soul that doesn't abandon him. He'll go from the most popular man around to the most hated man around. Some fear death for being associated with him. Some sell him out for money, and some simply refuse to turn to him in faith because of the hardness of their hearts. Where is your heart this morning? Are you in the crowd pushing towards Jesus to see what you can get from him? Are you plotting against Jesus, hating what he might threaten in your life, hating that he might require you to give something up? Have you been the disciple that abandons him when things get tough? Have you been trying to shoulder the burden of earning God's favor apart from Jesus Christ? Have you been looking down on those who don't measure up to your self-created standards of righteousness? The bad news is that the majority of us 
including myself, have probably been there, if not there, still struggling with something like that this morning. But the good news is that if that's you, that you can turn, believe in faith that you have been forgiven, that Jesus came to save people like you, save people like me. That you can put those burdens down that aren't yours to carry. That you can be made right with God. And no, it's not by your works. It's by Christ's work on the cross. So Nathan, if you'd like to come and join me, we're going to move into a time where we're going to take communion together. If you don't have a cup, uh, there's some over there. or You can raise your hand and we will, we will get you some. There's a couple of ways that you can use the next few minutes this morning. So if you are a if you're a born again Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus this morning, then I would encourage you to do this with us, to take this communion with us. If you're not, if you know that that's not something that you've done yet, I would encourage you let that pass you by and take this time to have that conversation with Christ. Take this time to bring your life and lay it down at his feet, all of it. No little patches remaining, no little parts left out. But to give your life to Christ this morning. And then if you do that, let's take communion together. I would love to do that with you. But Paul's uh, very serious in his letter to the Corinthians that if communion is taken improperly, uh, it it can actually be harmful to the person that is taking it. So again, if you've not had that conversation, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus, let that pass you by. And that's not a shameful thing. We would love for us to have that conversation with you. Communion reminds us of a couple of things. The first is that we have a new covenant that has been secured for us by Jesus, his life, death, his resurrection. And in this covenant, there has been made a way for man to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. All who turn to him in faith will be saved. It doesn't matter uh, what nation you're from. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, young or old. This covenant is open to any who turn to Christ in faith. And secondly, communion, it reminds us that he is the bread of life that sustains and that his blood purchased eternal life for us. So if you would with me, go ahead and take your bread from your container. I ask that during this moment that you would take some time to reflect and that you would thank God for the bodily sacrifice of his son on the cross. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of of me. So we take the bread. Father, we thank you for the body that was broken on our behalf. We thank you for your son being the bread of life that sustains us. For nourishing us spiritually through this life and then forever and eternity with you. Please take your juice that's been provided. During this time, I ask that you would thank God for the blood of Christ that has been spilled to purchase eternal life for you. First Corinthians 11, 
Starting in verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Father, I pray that we would never, ever become numb to what we just talked about. That we would never become calloused to what it means that the the creator of the universe, that the, the king of all, the good, the righteous Jesus died on behalf of sinners. That he died a criminal's death so that we could live the life that was rightly his for eternity. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people that do the right things for the right reasons. That our emotions, that our affections, that the love of our heart would match the actions of our hands and our feet. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace this morning.